Hello, and welcome to Systematically. Well, we're still doing our apocalyptic editions now. Uh, I hope you've gone back and listened to a few of the other episode we've, episodes we've done. Uh, there's a really interesting one on spiritual communion that we did with Joe Mudd and with Eric Mabry just recently. I hope you'll check that out. We've got another one coming on a related uh, topic uh, with some special guests for that as well. But today I have the privilege of inviting to the show, of welcoming to the show, Columbus Stewart. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, would you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Sure. I'm a Benedictine monk of St. John's Abbey in Collegeville, Minnesota. I've been a monk for almost 40 years at the, in this large community, which has lots of educational and other pastoral apostolate. Uh, for the last now almost 17 years, I've been executive director of the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, which is a longstanding project of our Abbey and University to photograph manuscripts in places around the world where they might be endangered and uh, then catalog them. Now, of course, these days we put them online. And we work in some very interesting places, all kinds of hotspots, working with both Christian and Muslim communities. And now just starting to reach out into Hindu and Buddhist manuscripts in South Asia. So although I'm a Benedictine monk, and as a Benedictine monk, I've taken a vow of what St. Benedict calls stability, which means attaching to a particular community and more or less being at that community. There's a little bit in me of what he calls uh, very disapprovingly the gyrovague. <laughs> the, monk, the monk who wanders around and never really settles. In fact, I am settled, uh, but I'm a lot more settled these days because of COVID-19. Yeah. I also do, I also do some work in uh, early monastic history and spirituality. I publish some in those areas and have been teaching on and off for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I want to, before we get into uh, the, the topic at hand, I, I, I want to ask a lot more settled uh, all of a sudden, like most of us. Uh, what's that meant for you, looked like for you? What's the experience been like of having uh, our plans so suddenly changed? I travel a lot for the manuscript library. And this year I had the added issue of being a Phi Beta Kappa visiting lectures. So I was going to six college and university campuses for sort of two-day gigs, meeting with students, public lecture, and so on. Um, so two of those got canceled this semester because of this. Other travel was canceled, workshops, conferences, this kind of thing. Uh, at the monastery, at the university, I live at something called the Collegeville Institute, which is a residential research center uh, in affiliation with the broader St. John's. And I've been living here for the last couple of years. What this has meant is that not only am I not traveling, but also my personal contact with the monastic community is now restricted mm. because they have it on a kind of you know lockdown for the sake of our older members and, and people who are particularly vulnerable. So I'm in this sort of double situation of suddenly finding myself home for extended periods of time, being able to really uh, dig deep into the monastic life in situ, well, at the same time, there's distancing, which doesn't allow me to actually pray or eat with my brothers. Yeah. Um, where I actually live is a beautiful place. I, I do have 
contact all day long, as all of us do, through you know various communications media to keep the work going. And my conferees reach out to me, and I'm regularly interacting with them in the same way. But it's strange. Yeah, yeah, strange indeed. Um, well, and that was that's part of why I, I wanted to talk to you. I, my sense of just speaking from my own experience is. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a husband and a father and a, a professor, and the 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 strange new circumstances have I've mentioned a few times on the show brought to light to me that there's a kind of um, and I and I, I keep emphasizing it that I mean this in a, in very concrete terms, but a, a a real spiritual challenge to having both things disrupted so significantly. I mean, that's certainly part of it, but to have the the character of the disruption be um you know stay in your house as much as you can uh that that the the being sort of put in place uh relative isolation or or uh at least uh, you know the, the the sort of physical isolation even if digital technology is still letting us you know have contact in those kinds of ways um that there's there's all kinds of challenges in terms of decision making, in terms of just like <laughs> managing my feelings about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I've talked to people, you know, as I've opened with this question on the show, lots of people have expressed sort of similar, similar thing. Um, and so in a kind of continuation of the conversation I had with Samantha Miller on the last episode, I wanted to ask about um, practices of... Um, Isolation is one word I keep using. Um, it's probably a, a different set of terminology we could, different sets of terminology we could pull on. Um, but of, of, of using sort of staying in place as a spiritual practice in the history of Christianity. Uh, and as you, as you mentioned, you've done some, some writing and some thinking and studying on that question. And, uh, and from the sound of it recently, uh, bumping into the other traditions that, that do similar things. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping we can maybe sort of start at 30,000 feet and you can tell us a little bit about, um, maybe we can start with the Benedictines but, but, or elsewhere if you want, but sort of what character does this kind of staying in place take in, in the Christian tradition as a spiritual practice? It's really interesting when you look at monastic history or let's say the broader tradition of Christian asceticism, of which monasticism is one particular form you sort of have two opposite poles in play. One of them is sort of following Jesus in the sense that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head and a tradition of ascetic wandering, so a perpetual pilgrimage, so deliberately not being stable in one place and not getting burdened by possessions and social entanglements and this kind of thing. And then the other end would be the sort of hermit tradition which is very much rooted in one place with highly limited social engagement, which is not to say that hermits, at least in the great monastic tradition, never had human contact. They often were besieged by people coming for spiritual counsel, but they, they were rooted in a particular location. And in the Benedictine life, as in so many ways, is sort of working somewhere in the middle uh, with uh, a leaning toward being very rooted in one place and creating a sustainable community, but always with room for uh, missionary work, founding new communities elsewhere, interacting with local people as appropriate, 
and this goes right back to St. Benedict himself, who when he went to build his great monastery on Monte Cassino, which is still the, the kind of mother abbey of Benedictines, also preached the gospel to the locals, not all of whom were yet Christian. So that this sort of interesting thread of engagement running through our tradition, and we know what monasteries were in the Middle Ages as basically providing social services, education, sustaining economic life for, for a village or, or an area of the country. So the, the monastic tradition has lots of particular expressions of its charism, but what unites them all is the commitment to structure. And I think most people who talk about uh, imposed isolation, whether it's people in the International Space Station or people these days, structure's the key to sanity. So in our terms as monks, we pray a certain number of times a day. Our community, it's four times. So three times for the divine office, which is Psalms and scripture readings, and then a daily celebration of the Eucharist. And everything is fitted into that. So the work goes into the available slots, the community meals, of course, are at logical times in relation to that prayer schedule. And this keeps us grounded. And that's the part of it I take wherever I go. Mm. So I have our entire divine office on PDFs on my iPad. So I've got it with me wherever I am. So I'm relying on that where I am here. Uh, and I can also watch it on the local campus TV channel broadcast all the Abbey services. So I'm finding a way to keep connected to that Aurorium. I can still hear the bells, mm-hmm. even if I'm not actually physically present for the, for the prayers these days because of these unusual circumstances. So I think that's essential. And then the other component of the rule that I think is very important is the notion that uh, we all need to be involved in some kind of manual labor. Mm. Now, what that often looks like for academics uh, as I am, uh, and in my work with the manuscript library, is yes, I do take my turn serving lunch, serving supper, you know, household chores and so on in the monastery. But I think for most of us these days who are in academic work, it's not so much manual labor in the classic sense of, you know, going out and plowing the field and chopping the wood. It's exercise. It's getting out and using your body in some way. And I think for me as a monk, uh, the aspect of it that's crucial is engagement with nature. Mm. Because there's this strong current of nature mysticism that runs through monastic tradition and spirituality, despite some of the language which suggests uh, transcending the material and the earthly to make contact with an invisible spiritual realm. There's also a keen sense of the wonder of nature as a form of contemplation of the creator. That's interesting. You know, so like I mentioned before, uh, we started recording when I was talking to Samantha uh, about, uh, in particular, about desert saints, and um, and in particular, her specialization has to do with demonology and things like this. But but it seems like there's another poll as as well. Um, you set up you set up the sort of the the polarity or the spectrum of sort of wandering and to to hermetic stability. Um, but it seems like there's another poll as well of sort of withdrawal to the wilderness and then also a kind of uh, integrated situation in urban or, or, you know, now more, you know, suburban environments. Um, and so, first of all, I mean, 
I'm, I'm not an expert. So is that a, a fair polarity to draw about expressions of, of monastic life? Um, and then, and secondarily, how, how might we sort of characterize the, the pull to those polarities, if that's a fair one in, in, in sp- Christian spiritual practice? I think the basic structure of monastic life has proven to be uh, extremely adaptable to a variety of circumstances and cultures, because at its base, it's just common sense living. <laughs> People get together, they figure out what they got to do to live, they set up a schedule, um, and they just go for it. And then that may be in a city, it may be in a rural setting. Monasteries typically have some removal from major urban centers, but there are some that are very much urban. Uh, we sometimes joke that if a, a plane full of Benedictines goes down and there's a deserted island in the Pacific somewhere where we have to start over, the first question somebody asks is, what time is evening prayer? <laughs> and then you, you sort of figure it out from there. Yeah. And so that, that very, very simple approach to life, which we may, of course, find ourselves reconnecting with in decades or centuries to come, depending on what happens to our planet, yeah. has proven to be very adaptable. And to be able to do that, you've got to take the environment seriously, uh, the natural environment, the social environment. And so there is this element of the monastic tradition, which is about as I said, using the natural world as a contemplative medium and relating that to the contemplative medium provided by scripture, the contemplative medium provided by, um, you know, forms of meditation and that kind of prayer of relative sensory deprivation. And then you put it all together and you end up with a kind of balanced diet. And the monastic life is, I think, is very good about being attentive to every component of that balanced diet. Mm. Um, <laughs> a, 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 a question occurs to me because I, I, I know that um, lots of people like myself, there, someone was joking on Twitter or something the other day about uh, if, if, if there is a baby boom in light of the coronavirus, it will be exclusively of firstborn children. Um, and <laughs> which, which is funny. That's good. That's good. Um, but, but there is, a, you know, there's an element of, okay, so you're, you're drawn together in these relative close quarters and you have the basic concrete tasks of like, we got to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and interpersonally, that, that can be really challenging. Um, communication can become difficult if things get stressful. Uh, even if there's open communication, there can be different ideas about what direction we're headed and what we're doing today at three in the afternoon, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so what, what character does, um, you know, conflict management take in a, in a monastic setting? I mean, we can, we can, we can speak historically, but even just, um, in your own experience. It's a really good question because we are dealing with it like everybody is, because the reality of this situation now is. Everybody processes it in his or her own way. And people process it on a different kind of pace or time scale. And then the challenge is when this person's up and this person is down, how do you navigate that? And we at least can have a little bit of distance from each other, which is not the case in your circumstances. (laughs) 
I mean, I'm in my I'm uh, in my uh, walk-in closet, so I've got a little bit of space, but not that much. No. Yeah. So you know, what is what is withdrawal for the sake of renewal and and contemplation look like? There's an English a spiritual writer who used to talk about the fact that uh, she would go into the closet under the stairs in her home every morning. And that was, you know, mommy's time out to do her prayers because that was the only space she could find yeah. uh, where, where this could be possible. So I think people learning to be sensitive to this diversity in responses. And uh, I ended up telling one of my confreres this morning, I said, I didn't take your call last night because I know that in the evenings I can't get all stirred up about stuff. Mm-hmm. because then I just brood over it. Yeah. Um, and so figuring out what our triggers are and what's a healthy way to engage with the difficulties or what other people are going through, and then what simply exacerbates whatever my situation is or, or their situation is. And then my, my colleagues who are working from home, homeschooling their kids, trying to deal with making sure they have the groceries, dealing with the minor health thing that, that turns up. Wow, that's a lot. And, you know, both of you aren't up to it and up for it. Uh, wow. Now that must get very, very difficult. Because <laughs> it's not like one, one person can do it all. No, it's um, true. And, you know, the, the, the same is true for us. We're... We're getting all hands on deck to wipe down surfaces, to deal with those who are in quarantine and self-isolation. At the same time, we're renovating our monastery, so everybody had to move out, and it's sort of dispersed in different buildings. There's just a lot of change happening yeah. all at once. And day by day, we keep understanding how much longer this is going to be. Mm-hmm. So well, at the same time, not knowing when it will stop. Right. Right, exactly, and and the at the at the micro scale of one's own living and the the demands of that, and making sure that there's food to eat and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's there's a there's a global scale to this thing, um, and you know you can if you're tre- if you if you're courageous enough to open your news app on your smartphone or whatever, you can get a very quick sense of precisely how global and fast moving and complicated this this thing is now but even that element we're we're maybe uniquely in history attuned to the global um and we mm-hmm. have access to co- to sort of particular details and good information more than than almost anyone but how but but this kind of thing i was talking to joshua burns at marquette for a previous episode about plagues in the hebrew bible um but but this is a human thing that's that's afflicted communities and, and and like in the Hebrew Bible, plagues can take various forms. They're they're not always viral. Um, but the, these kinds of large community afflicting crises, how has that marked Christian monastic communities in the past? And uh, how what are some if if you can think off the top of your head, what are some ways in which they've responded to this kind of thing? Interesting question. Um, so the motto of the Benedictine order as a whole, the motto of this Mother Abbey Monte Cassino is Sukchisa Vereshit, which can be translated as 
you cut it down and it still grows back. Mm-hmm. And so Benedictines over time have faced a lot of challenges. So there's the sort of stuff you were just describing that they share with the rest of their society. So you have plagues, you have famines, you have wars, this kind of thing. But then there have also been things like the Reformation, the French Revolution, which had a more direct targeting of monastic institutions uh, for religious or political reasons. And uh, it's sort of like whack-a-mole with us. I mean, no matter what you do, we still pop up somewhere else, which I think, again, goes back to this reliance on a very simple, basic understanding of creating human community with a spiritual foundation. And then all the rest of it flows from that. So back to what are the tools of keeping sane today, I think spiritual practice is crucial. And spiritual practice for somebody might mean going out to walk the dog and being in nature. For someone like me, it's praying the divine office and occasionally celebrating the Eucharist in these odd circumstances. Mm-hmm. I have a little congregation now on Sundays. There's two brave souls who are willing to have a physically distanced Eucharist with me <laughs> down here at the, the Collegeville Institute. Um, so this, this sort of sensitivity to the larger world and its pain, thinking about what kind of personal and pastoral response is incumbent upon me as a Benedictine, where I don't want to turn my back on that for the sake of self-preservation. I want to be sensitive to it, yet knowing that my ability to be of help to somebody else, whether it's getting their groceries or celebrating the Eucharist or simply talking to them absolutely depends on my staying sane as a monk Mm -hmm. and continuing those basic practices and and so and sound it sounds then like having a a, something of a a sort of platform in the in the sort of architectural sense from which to launch Mm -hmm. um and that platform is both communal but also personal and spiritual um, and i think having a a sort of spiritual approach to psychology. So I, I sort of work on two basic early monastic dudes, Evagrius the Pontus and John Cashin. And they were both very much in the kind of Alexandrian tradition of spiritual ter- interpretation of scripture and a kind of apophatic approach to prayer. But they also inherited from like, Greek philosophy and then its early Christian um, adapters like origin, uh, this profound sensitivity to how human beings actually tick psychologically. And you were talking about demons earlier. Demons is one aspect of that. That's a kind of overlay of interpretation from intertestamental literature, which then is evident in the New Testament because it starts to arise in Judaism in the so-called intertestamental period. But what Evagrius came up with, uh, as you probably know, is this wonderful schema of eight generic thoughts, mm-hmm. which is the background for the seven deadly sins. And it's a little inventory, a little personal inventory you can do on a regular basis just to see where the energy is in you on a particular day when something seems a little bit out of whack. So it, is it in lust? Is it in gluttony? Is it in avarice? 
Is it in anger? Is it in sadness? Is it in exedia, that sort of agitated, restless inability to focus, uh, looking over the fence, thinking life has got to be better over there than it is over here? Is it in fantasies of vainglory, fantasies of pride? And then the strategies they have to deal with each one of those. And I find taking that and then connecting it with the teaching on Lexio Divina and the Benedictine tradition, spiritual interpretation of scripture, and then the meditation practices to be enormously helpful. Mm. And remembering that uh, one way to talk about monastic life is to say Psalms are us, because several times a day we just get together and hurl Psalm verses back and forth at each other. Yeah. And what a great, great uh, source of material to work on with those eight thoughts. Yeah. And, and especially to, to, to think of those, and maybe I'm given to this in particular, though I'm Catholic now, I, I grew up in evangelical and I think the, that can frame th- those kinds of what you framed as a kind of diagnostic tool can very be quickly become sort of juridical tools of self-accusation. Right. Um, right. and then you, and then what you're doing is stewing in, Oh, I'm doing such a terrible job managing this situation and blah, blah, blah. Um, mm-hmm. I have that that voice that runs, right? That sort yep. of self-accusatory voice. But to think of them as diagnostic tools is, is tremendously helpful. Um, and I, you know, though I do worry that, well, let me speak for myself, that being posed the spiritual challenge of our current moment, I don't know that I've showed up to it prepared with, uh, though I may have some element of, di- of this diagnostic capacity, I don't know that I've showed up with Sort of strategies for responding to them, which you you, mm-hmm. you noted briefly. So for um, for Avagris, for example, what are some of the strategies corresponding to to some of the thoughts? We don't have to rattle through all of them, but what are the kinds of things that that they would direct someone to? So here, here's a good example when he when he talks about um, sadness, and his understanding of sadness is mapped pretty readily onto what we would call depression. So the desire to self-isolate, hey, mm-hmm. isn't hey. that relevant? Here we are. Um, just to hide out, not want to engage, uh, all this kind of stuff. The remedy for that is doing something for somebody else. It's getting out of the, the pity party and the desire to withdraw by engaging. Mm-hmm. And there's a similar approach he says to anger. That the whole point is either to get out of yourself or in the case of anger, find something that moves you off of the point of irritation Mm. and the obsession you have about what some person uh, said or did or your fantasy of what is going on that's making you so angry. You got to find a way to stop rocking back and forth Mm -hmm. on that little irritation point. The one for Exedia is particularly relevant. Now, I think, because if you're going stir crazy at home, you probably have things to do because you have small children. <laughs> yeah. if but if you're going stir crazy at home and you're sort of just surfing the web or uh, looking at all, how many channels you have on your TV with that remote controller, um, the solution for that is accomplish something. Hmm. Get the dishes washed. Clean the bathroom. Uh, if I were in the office, I'd photocopy copy something because there's an enormous satisfaction to having a task that is by its very nature limited and then you have a product 
right? Dishes are in the cupboard. Or in my hands, I have this photocopy of this thing. I made it, it's done. And then that often uh, gets us out of that. Yeah. And, and we're sort of reminded of the satisfaction of being productive and creative. I was in I was in graduate school for a long time, uh, but the first master's I did, I did at Boston College, and I lived alone. I had a little studio kind of apartment thing, um, and and yeah, against the sort of uh, hulking weight of philosophical reading and inquiry and thought, which always seemed interminable and never quite come to any conclusions, I developed the strategy of baking for sanity, because the best part about baking was. It had a beginning and a middle and an end. Yeah. At the end, you had a concrete right. product. And the best part was, if you wanted your clothes to fit, you had to share it with other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's something in that same zone of of you get caught in that malaise and um, having having something with a determinate product can be huge, mm-hmm. huge, huge, huge. Well, um, I don't want, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I'd also love to hear a bit a little bit about your your work um, with the with the library. Um, you mentioned at the top some new uh, some new ventures that that you have going on. So, um, would you would you tell our listeners listeners a little bit about sort of what your your mission is with that and the work you've been doing? Sure. So, the monks of our monastery in the mid '60s started a project to microfilm Benedictine manuscripts in Austria. And the imperative was the Cold War and the risk of it becoming a hot war, nuclear conflict in Europe, World War III, because mm-hmm. so much had been lost in World War I and World War II. But the project spread very quickly after that. We started working in Ethiopia in the 1970s with Christian manuscripts. Since 2003, we've had a lot in the Middle East, in Africa, now in South Asia, while continuing to work in Europe. So it's the, it's the classic monastic stereotype of the the monk sort of hunched over the copy desk, preserving Aristotle and the church fathers and all this kind of stuff for um, for posterity, just done in a sort of high-tech way. Yeah. And, and use, using the tools of online access to, to share that freely with the communities that created the manuscripts but may not have access to them, as well as for uh, other scholars who are really interested in working with this kind of material. And, and so if, uh, if people are interested, where can they go to, to access? So the easiest way to, would be to go to our two websites. One is hmml.org, hmml.org. We and I'll put that HML. in. The, okay, good. I'll put it in, the, in the, the show notes for the podcast as well. Too. Right, right. So our acronym, happily, is the German word for heaven, which uh, some of us <laughs> think manuscripts are pretty close to heaven. Yeah. And then the other the other place to look is V, VHMML, which is the um, online research platform that has all sorts of cool stuff in it. Oh, wonderful! Um, I'm sure I'm sure that many of our 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 nerd folk listeners will be glad to go and explore and explore, uh, especially those who suddenly have lots of time on their hands. I'm glad uh, you said nerd. I was trying to uh, <laughs> refrain from stereotyping your audience. But, uh, you you probably called it. It's uh, self-identification, you know. Um, All right. Know know what you are. Uh, so, and the, the thing I ask everybody too before I wrap up is: uh, Is there something that I that interesting that I should have asked you about that I didn't? Something that that we definitely should should mention before we part ways. 
well, I am a Texan, as a matter of fact. Oh, Although are I'm you? In, Minnesota, in Minnesota now, I grew up in Houston. Oh, okay. With uh, deep Louisiana roots. So I've, I've kind of moved around in the course of my, my lifetime. Uh, so it's just important to say that since you find yourself in Texas right now. I do, I do, yeah. Uh, and and uh, it, it is, it's going to be interesting to see um, the, the funny, you'll appreciate this having been in both climates. We lived in Milwaukee. I did my, doc, my doctoral work at Marquette, which is how I know our, our mutual friend Jacob. And, um, you know, winters in, in Milwaukee, like winters in Minnesota, yeah. uh, it, especially if you have little ones, you're, you're indoors mostly for the duration, unless you take a certain outdoor sport. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of inverse dynamic here in Texas. That's what in the mm-hmm. age of air conditioning is it gets to be, Sorry. it gets to be about June 1st. And uh, all your mm-hmm. activities are now indoors. You go from one air-conditioned space to another. It's, it's very strange. But at least for me, coming from California, where <laughs> there's, right. it, most, most places there's, there's no such constraints. But, um, well, that's, that's terrific. Thank you. Um, really appreciate you coming on the show. I think people are going to find this really interesting and, and in an unusual turn for us, maybe even helpful. So. If you want to talk to us about our show, you can do so on Twitter at SystematicPod. If you want to send us an email, um, you can find us systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. We have a, a tiny bit of overhead, and if you want to help with that, it's uh, one way you can do that is patreon.com slash systematically, which is a, a way you can donate um, small amounts month to month as we produce the show. Uh, if you want to help other people find the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever distribution service you're using um, helps the show pop up in their algorithms, that kind of thing. And our intro and outro music, as ever, is track uh, track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And this you know, next few days, while you're in your house, washing your hands, not touching your face, and socially distancing, please be intelligent.